gotta get your brain right if you're trying to make a million dollars If you ain't gonna do it for yourself, then do it for your mama Only stay surrounded by them people, if you know they solid Elevate your hustle up today to double up your profit Trying to learn some game, Xavier gonna talk about it No Deanna, speak that shit that everybody voucher Ain't no more excuses valid, get up off the couch and get up in your bag To your bank account and you land account it What's up, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Millionaire Mindsets Podcast. I'm your host, Xavier, sitting there with the wonderful, the beautiful Deanna Kent. What's up, D? What's up, Xavier? You looking good. You looking good today, man. I had to get, I had to, I had to get you that on camera. And today, <laughs> and today, today is a very, very, very special episode, man. I said I feel like I'm Dr. Phil or something. Man. We got the in live, it's the in-person experience podcast. We got the live studio audience here today. So what's up, everybody? This is going to be a super, super dope episode. And today we have a special guest. And everybody mm-hmm. know, if you don't know, you don't know what you've been doing. You've been sleeping under a rock. I don't know what's going on. You need to get your life together. And she go, her name is Aisha Selden, real estate investor, entrepreneur. Super excited to have her. Welcome back to the show. Thank y'all so much for having me. It's been two, almost, two years. almost two years. Almost exactly two years. Next yeah. week it'll be two years since I was last here. So thanks for having me back. Of course, our it's pleasure. our pleasure. It's our pleasure. A lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot has changed. But before we get started with the show, Deanna, she's gonna go into our first sponsors. Yes, sir. So this week's episode is gonna be sponsored by Commando Athletics. Um, right now, you know they're hosting a challenge. So you know, here at Millionaire Mindsets, we are firm believers that health is wealth, and this is the perfect opportunity for you to make your health a priority. This six-week challenge comes with easy-to-follow workouts and meal plans, so that you'll get results in no time. It's minimum equipment needed for both the and home and gym option and all fitness levels are welcome to enter and the best part about this challenge is that the top performers get a thousand dollars you guys so if you go ahead and go over to www.commandoathletics sign up for the challenge today it's only 79 dollars to enter and then the top five performers at the end of the challenge will get an opportunity to take home a thousand dollars each and with that being said our second sponsor for today's episode is going to be allergic to hourly so if you guys don't know allergic to hourly is founded by Ariel hill she started this ari Ari the great so ari started this business to help um coach to coach people who are ambitious high-performing women who want to grow their online services business to become rich fulfilled and free it's an amazing program and we've heard nothing but great things about it and everyone who's joined ath has all had a great experience so make sure you guys go over to www.allergicshourly.com and apply to join ari's group and the link for both of those will be in the description of this podcast episode. So if you're interested, like I said, go to the description of this episode and click those links. So getting right into the show, the everybody's been waiting on this episode to happen. Yep. So <laughs> the first question I always like to ask, like background, just for the people that may not be familiar with you. Do you mind just talking about that a little bit? Yep. Um, so I'm Aisha Selden. Uh, thanks again for having me. Um, I mean, I, I grew up probably like most of most of y'all. I grew up in the hood. Actually, maybe not like most of y'all. I had a, <laughs> I y'all look like an elite group. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I um, my mom was a teen mom. She was 16 when she had my sister, 19 when she had me. Um, we grew up in the thick of things in South Philly, one of the worst housing projects at the time in South Philly, Passion Homes. Um, and and nobody ever talked about money. It was like like I learned I learned money. I learned more watching trading places um, about Eddie money Murphy. than I ever learned in you know growing up. I mean that's not we just it just wasn't the norm that you talked about money and, and how to how to 
um, how to build assets. So um, I was one of those just odd kids that was always fascinated with with wealth. I was fascinated with things that happened outside of um, our small little hood. Um, my mom was um, very instrumental in 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 the life that I eventually would build for myself because she was, um, she was, she looked at her kids, um, two kids at 19 and said, I've got to do better for myself so that my kids will have opportunities that, um, that, that I didn't have. So she put herself through college, um, first uh, generation college educated and became a registered nurse. Um, took us out of the project. She bought her, she bought a house. Um, she rented it for a little while and then bought a house. Um, and I got to go to college for free for, because she works at Temple Hospital. Um, just recently retired at 63. Um, and that changed the trajectory of my life, her decisions. So, um, and she's just, she, she's just an amazing person. Um, we always lived in relatively poor neighborhoods. I mean, she was still a single mom. Um, so one of the things that was really interesting about her, it was important for her to see, for, for, it was important for her for us to see um, things outside of the hood. So she would pack us in the car, take us out to like the most affluent neighborhoods uh, right outside of Philly and just drive us around. Like we, like we didn't know anybody, like we couldn't get out, <laughs> but she would take us around to different neighborhoods so we could see how other people lived. Um, she would take us, we didn't have money to, to, to travel. So she would take us to the airport and like in the, at, back before 9-11, you could like go to a gate and we would just stand there and look and watch and, and see planes take off. And that for us, we was like, this is like, we are living. Like, this. <laughs> um, because most of our friends didn't have those opportunities. I mean, I, I think back, um, I think back to my mom's friends and we're talking Philly in the seventies and eighties. I mean, we're talking, they were on hardcore drugs. Like, like now, nowadays, like you can be like a functioning addict on most of the stuff that's out there today. You weren't functioning on crack, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so most of her friends, um, did hard drugs and their kids, um, you know, came up through the system or surviving that kind of trauma. Um, and a lot of them lived with us for periods of time. So we, we got to see firsthand, like what, what that kind of stuff can do to families. Um, so I was, I was the fortunate product of, um, of good decisions by my, by my mom, um, support by my grandma, because you, you don't get to be, uh, a 16 uh, year old parent or 19 year old parent, um, and do it on your own. Um, and then put yourself through college without having support of a village. So my grandmother kept my sister and I for, for a long time. And then if, I don't know if, if any of y'all know RNs, um, they tend to work. 12 hour shifts. Right. My mom works 7P to 7A um, with young kids. You don't get to do that without support. So we had a, we had a, we had a village. Um, and then the, the, and then the rest was, was kind of on me. I mean, I was, I was just fascinated with everything money. Um, like the things that, like the things that fascinated most of my friends, clothes and jewelry. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. That just never appealed to me. Um, the things that appealed to me were like money. Like, now I would watch movies like Wall Street. Like that ain't that, they ain't doing the same. They ain't doing the same things that we doing here. Like what? Like how do you get that kind of money? Um, and I'm I'm so thankful and grateful for um, movies that came after like the 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 black exploitation films. Like movies like Boomerang. Um, I'm like you know all right, I, I, now you see black people like living right. Mm -hmm. Like we we don't have to yeah. be drug dealers. We don't all have right. to be pimps. You know. Um, not to say there's anything wrong with pimping. I mean, like, <laughs> get it how you live. Get it how you live. Um, so, you know, I, I started to see things outside of uh, my community because you got to think, like, I grew up um, 
in the in the 70s and 80s and the 90s in Philly, right? So my role models um, at that time, our role models in that community at the time were, were drug dealers, right? Like who had the most money? So you got a kid who's fascinated with money. Um, growing up in the inner city, my only like heroes, the people who had money um, were drug dealers, right? So um, I tell the story quite a bit how like, I'm like, all right, like I had, a, I had a business mind very early on. And I remember thinking if the drug dealers have the most money, I got to figure out how I, how, how I do that um, in a way that's safe for me. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. I ain't going to be on these streets, you know, on these corners myself, right. myself. And, um, and, and I don't want to ever hold the product. I mean, I, I've always, just kinda, <laughs> I was always forward thinking, right? So, um, so I made the decision because I, I, I was always really good at money. My first job at McDonald's, I was, um, Making four twenty five an hour, but I could stack. I could stack some cash. Mm -hmm. I mean, four twenty five an hour. Four twenty five an hour. <laughs> Damn. I was hitting the. Hold on, hold on, To be fair, I was hitting the registers too. I was, uh -oh. <laughs> hey, you gotta mention the statute of limitations. I'm from South Philly. I'm gonna show y'all this. Like, hey, you gotta check the statute of limitations listen, on that. I, I, you I, might I, have to edit that, man. I, I was probably. <laughs> I was probably making more like forty dollars an hour. If you know. What you mean. Damn. Uh, how so, old? How, how old were you? I was six, 16. I was 16. Yeah. yeah. And I was, I was very good with math. You want two number one, 640, drive around. Like, you know, I could, and they didn't have digital screens back then. I would hit the extra two, like, you know, I could listen. Um, thank you, McDonald's. Um, so, so I had, you know, I had thousands of dollars saved in my bank account and I had a whole plan. So I was going to provide the funding I was going to buy. And it was just, just weed, just marijuana. Um, which we <laughs> listen. Which, which in, in retrospect, now looking back, I mean, think about right. how many people are still incarcerated for selling right. something that's perfectly that's legal, legal now. Um, and also, you know, so so I had my plan, and I was gonna I was gonna buy, it and I had employees at McDonald's who they were willing to go to their high schools and and and, and distribute our product. Um, so I had this whole plan, and I and I, I will never forget the night before we were about to really get busy. My mom came in my room, and she's like, "Whatever you're thinking about doing, don't do it." She's like, I don't like, like, I don't know if y'all got praying moms, but like, my, yeah, my mom, she, like she yeah. sat there and, I, and, I, and of course I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? Um, but I squashed it after that. Like what, you know, so, so who knows what would have happened? What would have happened? Who knows the direction that my life would have taken? Um, and then, you know, after that, I, I, I went legit. I became a bank teller um, and thankfully was just, you know, completely absolved, you know, delivered of all like just crazy dealings I had. You know, I never I counted thousands of dollars a day per, by hand and never, you know, never had any desire like th that wasn't my money. Um, but that one of the interesting things about working as a bank teller um, while I was uh, a, a college student was that really started to open my eyes um, to see and think differently about money. Right. So because because as a bank teller, especially with you know someone who's fascinated with money, I got to identify a person with a bank account. Right. And I think that I think more folks should have that experience. Right. So people will come into the bank um, and it, like my first few customers I would wait on. I'd be like, oh, I know she got I know she got money. Like, you know, she come in. She 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 looking good. She got the you know, she got all the all the, the fancy, yeah. listen. And 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 she was, you know, they she gave me some money and like. Man, we bringing your account to even. Like, 
you you were in the net like so and you know we was locking eyes like sis you are no you are like so, <laughs> you know it's it that got to that was a great experience for me because um i realized working as a teller it doesn't matter what you come in here looking like and that validated for me i mean i was never i never cared about any of that stuff um, but that validated for me that um it doesn't matter what you're wearing it doesn't matter how eloquent you are or how how not eloquent you are um, I saw all kinds of bank accounts, you know, and like somebody you'd, you'd think they're coming in looking like they just got off the struggle bus, like, yo, what's going on? And, and I mean, just just all kinds of people um, just shocked me. Um, so and then I became a financial advisor right out of college. And that mm. was my um, that was kind of like what taught me not only to be a saver, because I, I've, I've always been a, a disciplined saver that taught me that saving alone won't make you wealthy. Right. Like your, your bank account, your checking account, your savings account, your, your CDs um, working as a financial advisor. I learned really early on. I got to I got to figure out how to exponentially increase this. Mm. Um, and that's when I, I started my journey towards becoming a disciplined investor. Mm. So I want to ask you, like doubling back, going to mentality, because you mentioned that you grew up in the hood. Like in a, I know I did like. Xavier did and growing up in those environments it's really hard to see yourself getting out of that environment yep. and a lot of times there are a lot of different roadblocks whether you know we may put them there ourselves or others have put them in our place to prevent us from getting out of that environment and for you you did that so can you speak on like mentally like how did you stay so you know focused and determined like getting yourself out of that position um you know, it it never it never dawned on me that I couldn't, right? And I think Xavier, we were talking about um, we were talking about Oprah, right? Like yep. for me as a kid, um, and and it's 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 kind of to this day why I like I I don't let people speak ill about her because me seeing her as a kid, like well if she can do it, I can do it. Like, why wouldn't I be able to do it? I mean, I don't want to run a talk show, but if if she can take herself from the the, the depths of where Mississippi, Mississippi or wherever yeah she started yeah. out, if she can if she can go from there to where Brilliant. she is, um, and and all of these people who I saw um, who looked like me um, doing things, what I what I didn't know um, because during the period of time where we moved from the projects to my mom first buying a house, we we rented. Um, our landlord um, was a guy named Mr. Mitch. He was a white guy, um, and every landlord I, I, I knew just in our neighborhood was a, was a white guy. Um, I didn't know that we could own property. I didn't know that we could be landlords. I didn't like that stuff. I didn't know. Um, when I got to high school, I read a lot. You know, I was mm -hmm. I was I was like I was I was like a nerdy would be drug dealer, right? Like so. <laughs> um, so I. The ability to put my head in a book, um, I read a lot of Toni Morrison books and she talked a lot about um, land and the power of land and ownership and why you don't give up good land. Um, all of those things had me thinking really early on, like you've got so much opportunity, so much potential, you've just got to figure out like how you get there. So for me, it was never really a question of is this going to be my life forever? Um, mm -hmm. I think that's largely um, based upon the experiences that my mom gave me outside of the hood. So I was fortunate there. Um, so because I was able to see what was possible, um, it never dawned on me that I couldn't. Mm -hmm. mm. So you spoke on Toni Morrison, like, and the, the fact that she's talking about never giving up land. And this is a question I've been waiting to ask you. So right now the real estate market 
It's blazing. And I know you always have the mentality is never sell, just hold on to it forever. Yep. So what is your thoughts on people that may be contemplating right now selling the, selling the deal because the market's so hot? If you're over leveraged, sell. I mean, to be, to be, to be clear. Um, and to explain what that means, if you bought the property for whatever value and you've bled dry that property, your mortgage is really high on it. And if we had a correction or pullback in both values and rents, that could leave you both underwater, uh, meaning you would owe more in the property than, than it's valued at if we saw a, a decent size correction. Um, a lot of investors are um, now experiencing, if you're in an area where there's a lot of development, right? Like let's say you bought a rehab eight years ago and you've been renting it out for eight years and you've got a whole bunch of brand new uh, development uh, going up in your neighborhood. I mean, they, now the new one's got like fancy technology, they've got, you know, quartz countertop, they've got all this stuff, um, and they come in and price their new fancy complex rentals um, close to yours. When your lease renews, your tenants are going to start looking around like, why would I renew here with right. four mica countertops um, when I could go into one of these nice new complexes because there's, there's you know, possibly an abundance of supply in that neighborhood or in that market, um, and you may have to drop your rents to be competitive, Right. So um, in some cases, if you, because I, I, I say all the time, you know, I, I like to hold everything. Um, the caveat to that is I am never over leveraged, right? So someone who, because we've got um, a very unique opportunity right now as sellers where, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a massive uh, shortage of single family houses in, in most markets. So um, that's, I mean, you, you can barely afford to buy in the hood in Philly today. It's, it's, I mean, it's wild. Hood, hoods that I, like a hood that I was buying properties for 6,500 bucks, 7,500 bucks in Philly between like 2013 and 2017 are now selling for upwards of 200,000. Right. So if I'm, if I'm a working, if, if I'm, if I'm a working, um, person in Philly, it's hard for me to even afford the hood. So um, I believe ultimately that our, our, our unique experiences kind of govern, our, our personal experiences govern how we invest, right? So that mantra that I have of I'm holding things forever comes from my own personal experiences, right? So that house my mom bought um, in South Philly, she sold it in 98 or 99 for like 35 or 40,000. And I remember telling her before she sold it, I was in college, I said, mom, don't sell our house. I said, I, I got a good feeling that based on just where we are. And again, I, like I'd only knew this from reading Toni Morrison books and, and seeing stuff on TV. I remember telling her, don't sell the house. Like we're, we can walk to downtown Philly. I know there's a housing project right around the corner. I know we call our neighborhood Saigon, but I got a feeling that based on where this property is, um, it's going to be worth a lot of money one day. Like, don't, don't sell it. Um, and we had just, um, we were moving, I was in college, we were moving to a bigger house. She needed a, a bigger space. And she had a tenant for that place. And the tenant said, I want to buy this. And, you know, basically, if you don't sell it to me, I'm going to go move somewhere else. And my mom was scared, right? So she had, so she, it was the fear of, I'm going to have my new mortgage, and then I'm going to have this mortgage. So she was so scared, she sold the property. And I mean, it, it, it almost seemed like, instantly, like within a, a couple of years, the neighborhood started changing. They knocked down the housing project. Um, she, if she sold that house for 35, 40,000, it's probably worth at least 20 times um, more now, easily worth 20 times more just because of the location. So 
that experience for me, and, and it's interesting because that experience for me, I, I was kind of angry about that for a long time. Like, <laughs> that was, be too. That, like that was our legacy. That was our wealth. That was our, that, yeah. that was, that was for, for, for us eventually. That was wealth for my mom. Um, but then I started thinking of it differently. Like that shaped how I invest today because now I'm like, that will never happen to me again. Like I will never put myself in a position where I kick myself selling assets that I knew I should have held on to. So, you know, I mean, most people know or don't know I'm a licensed stockbroker, have been since um, June of 2000. Um, that's guided me. That, that, how that happened, um, that experience has guided me not only with real estate, but also with stocks. Right. I bought a I bought a stock. Um, I can't say the name just because as a licensed stockbroker, you're you're under FINRA. So you like I can't give social media. I can't give advice through social media or interviews. It's it's construed as advice, even if I say the company name. Um, but I bought a, a company. I put eighty six hundred dollars in a company in 2007. Um, and there have been so many different things that have happened to that company over, you know, I mean, from 2007 to 2021. Um, 14 years. Yeah, yeah, four, yeah 14, 14 years, years later, there's been so many different things. People have been saying, sell the stock. You know, this happens, you should sell the stock. You should, like, this happened with the company. Oh, they're, like, they've got too many competitors. You should sell the stock. Um, and I've added to that position, but in different accounts, just because I wanted to just watch this. And, and me being stubborn, you will never tell me to sell an asset that I know is a good company. Um, I watched it. It pulled back some uh, recently, but I watched it go from 5,600 to it hit 511 um, at its peak, I think maybe like a week or so ago. Um, and that was just that one position that I never added a, another dime to that particular account. Um, so, so, so that stubbornness that I have um, because of the experience of my mom selling that property um, has been extremely valuable for me just building, building wealth. I'm just stubborn and I will not get rid of assets. And I, and I tell people that if you, if you have an asset that you thought it was a good idea to buy initially, um, keep it forever, hold it forever. Don't do anything stupid, like over leverage, take out too much, too much debt on it because then you can end up in a whole lot of trouble. But if you've got a property that is, has a low amount of leverage on it, somewhere between, I'd say 50 to a max of 70%, um, loan the value on it, keep it, hang on to it forever. Hmm. Well, what do you say to people? Because um, like I tell people something similar, they always say, well, what's the point? Like well, eventually, like how are you going to enjoy yourself? What's the point of just holding on to it forever? Where's the reward mm -hmm. in that? What's um, your response? Um, so, I mean, it depends on what you're holding. It depends on what you're investing in, right? If it's if it's real estate, which is one, one of the reasons why I like real estate is because it pays cash flow, yep. right? So all the properties that people were telling me to sell many, many moons ago, I mean, my I've got I've got some partners, um, but like my my personal split on real estate that I've been just stubborn enough to hold on to pays me about twenty five thousand a month, right? So like, I mean. <laughs> like, I, you know, that's a, that's a, I could enjoy that t today. I, right. You know, mm -hmm. I, I can enjoy that today. So um, that's, that's, that stubbornness doesn't mean that you don't in, enjoy yourself. Um, I talk a little bit about in my book, Month of Millions, I talk a little bit about um, lifestyle inflation. Um, the key is not to like, not to squash things that are important to you, right? Think like, Clothes and that kind of stuff was never really important to me, right? Like I, I've never cared about that. I, I will always have a nice car, right? Mm -hmm. Like so, I, I, I like you're never gonna. Well, in Philly, I drive a pickup. <laughs> I drive a pickup <laughs> truck, but I feel very safe in that pickup truck in Philly. But when I'm in LA, um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna have a nice car, right? So that's 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 my vice. That's that's important to me. I'm always gonna stay in a nice hotel, right? I will stay on Rodeo. I will stay at the the Beverly Wilshire. Um, I will. I mean, I'm, I'm, I tried to find the nicest hotel here. I'm staying at the Crescent, <laughs> which is a lovely place. Um, so, you know, I'm, so that though I have my vices, right? Like, don't don't get me right. wrong. I don't want anyone like she like she don't spend no money. Um, <laughs> my house in California that I've been building is my vice, right? Man. Like, I've li- I literally spent more on a stove than I've spent for entire houses. Oh my right? god! So. I spend money, right? <laughs> Drop a bomb. So, so the, the key is like you know. But again, I, I made sure that my lifestyle was substantially below my income for a very, very long period of time, right? So as my income income exponentially increased, my lifestyle didn't exponentially increase. I lived a, in a nice lifestyle, but my income, like as my as my income went up, my expenses didn't go up equally. So I think if you can if you can make sure there's a nice gap in there between here's what I'm making, here's what I'm spending, and make sure that your expenses don't go up at the same rate your income does, and just make sure that you save slash invest that difference, um, I think that you'll you'll be fine. You won't feel like, you know, I'm 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 living like a hermit today. Right. Just mm-hmm. a just a ball in thirty years. Mm. Well, <laughs> I got a question about the stove though. So, like, you stuck on the stove. Yeah, I'm stuck on the stove for a second. So, like, um, like, what kind of stove is this? It's a, it's a La Corneille. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like, and for 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 me, um, that house in L.A. was a. Um, so I'm, I I bought a place in L.A. February of nineteen. Started working on it. It took about a year to get permits. Um, and that that for me was like the the culmination of a lot of years of hard work and sacrifice. So what happened was I, um, I, I bought and renovated a four unit building in, in the hood in Philly, um, North Broad, like the heart of the hood of, of Philly. And I, I decided to dedicate that house. It was, it was um, a, a building that I, I had no mortgage on and the cash flow was sufficient to buy essentially what I wanted in California, just mm-hmm. pay, pay the mortgage. So I dedicated that house to buying what I, what what I, what I always what I always wanted. Because I mean, the thing about LA is LA is a tough city. Like most people are struggling to live there. Yep. I went to LA the first time um, right after I graduated from college and I remember thinking I'm coming back, but I ain't coming back poor. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I knew I knew then I wanted a house there, but I'm like, th- I see how people like struggle to live out here. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I went back to a cheap city, Philly, where I could make a decent income, have a relatively low cost of uh, cost of living, stack my wealth there. So when I went when I pulled up to L.A., I mean, I could pretty much buy, uh, you know, a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I you but even still, I said, I need to have an asset that's going to pay for this house, my, mm-hmm. my, my, my wants. Um, and that's, that's when I decided once I, once I finished that house or was relatively close to finishing that four unit building, um, I, I closed on the place in, in LA. You know, such a gem, but sometimes I, I definitely wanted to ask you, cause I know this is a big debate for a lot of people and it's the debate of should your first house be your family home? And a lot of people feel like if you buy your first house as your family home, it kind of messes up your journey to becoming a real estate investor. And they see it, and a lot of people say, well, all right, well that house can be an asset because you know, what if I build equity in it or so on and so forth. So for you talking to the new real estate investors out there, do you think their very first home 
home, should they buy a family home as their first one or should they get an investment property first? So my first house was a was a house I lived in. Mm -hmm. So I mean, and I think I think both can work. I think I think like most answers in um, in, in finance, personal finance is that it, it depends. Right. So my first house I bought, I, I lived in it and I house hacked. So there's so many different ways. Like if you if you buy a property um, and for those of you that, that don't know what house hacking is in a single family house, um, I had a three bedroom house uh, and I got a roommate and her rent basically paid my entire mortgage. So for me, that was an opportunity to, uh, because this I was 24 at the time, mm -hmm. that was an opportunity for me to basically use the money that I didn't have to pay to pay the mortgage because she was paying me and I used that, built that up and bought a rental property, another rental property um, or a rental property two years after that. So I don't think that there's any um, right or wrong. Um, if I were looking today, um, just based on the fact that values have, have gone up so, so much, especially uh, during the pandemic, um, if I didn't own a home already, I would probably be looking for somewhere between a two to four unit, um, multi-unit building, um, and, and living in one of the units and renting out the other one to three units. Um, and you can do that getting an FHA loan, right. paying three and putting three and a half percent down. Like if I, if I had to jump out there, um, I would buy a multi and I'd use FHA financing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great way to essentially get a space for yourself, put very little down, and at the same time have cash flowing tenants as well. I agree. So you bought your first one. You said that you waited two years and then you bought another one. I waited two years and I bought another uh, another rental property. But I, I didn't start scaling until, so I bought my first, that first home I bought was in 2002. I didn't really start scaling until 2011. Was that intentional? Um, I'm always looking for, I'm always looking for deals in the market. I, like, I've, I've, so you got to think when I first started investing, period, um, my very first investment was in 1999 in a technology mutual fund. And for those of you who don't know what happened shortly after that, we call that the dot-com bubble burst, dot -com bubble right? Burst, yeah. So again, our experiences govern how we invest. So for me, I'm thinking that taught me very, very early on, be careful of high markets, bubbles, um, because I got burned. I think I, I think I lost like 70% of my investment within like, within like a year period, right? So, so again, that, that I'm, I'm always very cognizant of, you know, this feels really high, it's feeling kind of toppy to me. Um, and that's, that's also made me a little bit, probably too more conservative than I, than I should be. Mm -hmm. I thought 2018, we were at the peak, we were at the top. I stopped buying real estate in Philly in 2018 because I was like, there's no way this is going any higher than it is. And, and, and here, we, here we are. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, it's, I'm always trying to watch and trying to evaluate the market. I'm always looking for opportunistic plays. So the reason I got, I got in heavy in 2011 is because I watched the market crash in 2008, 2009. I saw it start to bottom in 2010, and then it started to like come back up a little bit in 2011. And I was like, all right, now it's my, this is my opportunity to strike. And I, it was intentional that I got in then because I didn't want to get in the market as it was like increasing, increasing, increasing. I thought it felt very much like it, it did, the stock market did back in 1999, early 2000. 
So when I saw that the market crashed and I saw that it was finally starting to recover, I, I knew we were at a bottom. So what I did was I went back to the equity um, that I had in that 2002 property that I had. So keep in mind, from 2002 to 2011, I owned it for nine years. Um, I had been paying it down for nine years. Plus, I still had some appreciation because I bought it before the market really swelled up, um, mm -hmm. before the, 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 the great financial crisis. Um, and I used the equity there to really start scaling. So I took 54,000 of a home equity line, uh, from a home equity line of credit against that property, and I used that to really just get busy and start leveraging. So I was using back at the time, y'all probably have heard of the, the Burr method. Mm -hmm. That's when you buy it, you rehab it, you rent it, you refinance yeah. it, and then you repeat that process. So at the time in 2011, I wasn't making as much money as I am today for my, for my franchise I own. Um, so I was financing, I was leveraging like everyone else, but I was also very cognizant of how much debt because I was still scared. We didn't know in 2011, like, is this thing going to crash again? I mean, mm -hmm. it was, we were still just coming out of, um, the, the great financial, um, recession. So I, um, I took 54,000, used that to buy a property in South Philly in an area that people were like, you shouldn't buy there. That's the ghetto. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I strategically positioned myself in the wave of, I know developments coming this way. It was not very far from that house that my mom sold, um, for, you know, $35,000, dollars I couldn't afford there anymore. So I just went a little further south, and then I went a little further south, and I went a little further south. And there's a there's a street in South Philly called Washington Avenue, um, and, and everyone said, don't go south of Washington. I couldn't afford north of Washington, and they said, don't go south of Washington. And I'm like, there's no physical barrier that's that would prevent people from crossing Washington Avenue. So I don't I don't get it's not like a moat or you know there's no <laughs> canal here like you know you don't have to swim across. So I don't understand why. So and 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 I was right. I took that fifty four thousand. I bought a property that was still in a cheap area, and sure enough, the de the development came, but not before um, I bought that house. Then I went, bought another around the corner, and then I bought another back on the same block. So I I was buying heavy in um, in an area that I I, I knew would. Um, eventually increase in it and it did um, I got priced at, priced out of that neighborhood um, so I just looked for another neighborhood in Philly where I could I could replicate what I was doing I was gonna say real quick um, since we are pretty much like a market crash is coming it's inevitable it's gonna happen at some point what advice would you give to real estate investors for how to maneuver that since for a lot of us being so young that's gonna be our first time ever experiencing something like this um, Good question. You know, I would I would say just be very cognizant of of how you buy, you know, and, and that's how you buy any asset. Mm -hmm. So if you um, if you're going to be a long term investor, you um, you know, it's it's OK to buy high if you're thinking I'm going to hold this for, for a very long time. And as, lo as long as the debt on the building makes sense. Um, I would just be very careful of, um, and I think the market's cooled down a little bit. Mm -hmm. I would be very careful of. Um, bidding wars you know if you're if you're one of like 67 offers maybe that ain't you you know maybe that's <laughs> not the one yeah maybe that's not the one for you so you know and 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 we 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 sometimes get like attached to things um you know like that's my house i want i want that investment property or that you know i would just say be be very be very cognizant of the fact that we could have um, I don't think it'll happen this year, and, and no one really knows when the market's going to pull back, and, and no one knows really what's going to, to trigger that. Um, but I would just say be be easy on some of these acquisition prices. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still not buying, you know, and if really? I were buying today, 
um, in the in the one to four unit um, space, I would probably be looking for off market deals. I would probably be contacting sellers myself. I mean, I would be cutting out middlemen. Um, I would be looking for um, as as much value as I could as I could find. Mm -hmm. What is your thoughts? Because there's a saying that uh, real estate isn't to build wealth; it's to sustain it. So, if you're experienced, like, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, the the good owners of Los Angeles would disagree. Um, <laughs> it has built a lot of wealth, right? Um, and 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 we've we we know for a fact that um, home ownership is the number one driver of wealth in this country. So I don't I don't I don't agree with that. Um, you know, we've seen, although appreciation, um, you know, you could, one could argue that real estate historically hasn't appreciated, um, you know, at, at ret annual returns higher than the stock market, for example. Um, but if you buy a good piece of cash flowing property, um, especially in markets that I like, you know, I tend to focus on lower price, higher cash, uh, cash flowing markets like Philly, Baltimore, um, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, parts of Chicago. Um, you know, I, I look for markets where, you know, I, re I remember when I was heavily investing in single families, small multifamilies, I was getting, um, I mean, I could get a 20% unlevered yield on cost. I mean, I could, I could go in and get all my money back in five years. And for me, that was like a no brainer. I can, I can deploy my capital and get all of my capital back through rents in five years. And after that, like we playing with house money, I don't mm -hmm. care what happens, right? <laughs> like after that, like we're, we're good. So, um, so I absolutely think that, that real estate can be a, a driver of wealth. I know a lot of investors who use their uh, excess cash flow and take the cash flow and throw it into um, index funds. So they, you know, they take their, their rents and use it to build wealth, um, in a, in a diversified fashion through other markets, either through stocks or through digital currency. I mean, it can mm. it can absolutely build wealth. Mm -hmm. I, I, agree, I agree too. And what I like about that is like, I think the moral of the story is there's no one way on how to do things. I think everybody's experience in real estate, in business, in life in yep. general is gonna be different. Yep. And I think we all just need to do what works best for us. But something I did want you to talk about, cause when we was in the back and you was giving me all the gems before the show, you was talking about how it's been really beneficial to um, have Section 8 tenants right now and um, and I was talking about veteran tenants as well So could you dive inside like why in this particular time like it's really beneficial. Yep So um, I'll preface this with, with saying I have no section 8 tenants. Mm -hmm. I have all private pay tenants um, But I mean during the pandemic and fortunately fortunately, I I haven't had to um, I haven't had any tenants that I've had to evict um, mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. I haven't had any tenants that kind of hunkered down in, in, my, in my property. And, and thankfully, my patience was not tested in that way. <laughs> um, so, you know, but, but just knowing a lot of investors, uh, folks, investors who had um, Section 8 tenants, I think were the big winners. Mm -hmm. in, in this pandemic. I mean, this is, you know, no one saw something like this coming, you know, and, and you've got, you've got, you've got folks who are just, you got, you have folks who legitimately can't pay the rent, right? You've yeah. got families who, because of the pandemic, they've, they lost their jobs. They can't find something else. Like, you know, they're, they're behind. You've got folks who are in, in, in legit, um, le legit, um, dire straits, but then you've got a lot of folks who are just taking advantage of the system because they know that in certain cities they, you can't evict them. Yep. Um, so folks who are landlords who are, who have section eight tenants, I mean, they may miss the tenant paid portion, 
Um, but to have that, to have that government rent hit every single month. I um, I am a Section 8 PHA, is, is in Philly, um, certified landlord, and I have had Section 8 tenants over the years. Um, I don't have any now, not because of the, the tenants, um, really because the program in Philly is just, they're, they're not very or, well organized. I mean, the mm -hmm. bureaucracy, you got to wait. It's like, it's, it's just chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been able to find private pay tenants just fine. I think people hear stories like this and they was like, they think like no losses happened. It was just a smooth ride on a journey, like just a perfect, a perfect journey. Yep. So I want to ask you like, just touching on like a loss for a second. Like if you, if you mind sharing, like what's in within real estate, like the biggest loss you took and how did you bounce back from it? Um, I'm still holding an L. Ooh. I'm still, I got, so, so again, here's where, so this is why by, in 2018, I was like, we had to top y'all. I ain't buying nothing else. Hunker down. Like it's about to blow. Um, so in 2007, no, November, 2007, I bought, um, that automatically should be like, oh, Do you know what <laughs> yeah, like November of 07, you bought like what? Um, I bought a condo. Um, already, already in already. a high property tax area um, right outside of Philly. I couldn't sell that thing. Well, actually, I, I paid off I paid off the mortgage, but I, I couldn't sell it today for anywhere near what I paid for it 14 years ago. Today, anywhere near? Nowhere near. And 14 years ago? 14 years ago. So, and, and for, a long, for, for a long period Damn. of time, I had... Um, I had a mortgage on it and was losing about $600 a month. Now, fortunately, I have, you know, a right. bunch of other tenants that $600 a month loss gets absorbed in, in you know, in, in all of um, in all of the other cash flow. Yeah, cash flowing properties. And I don't have any others that are that were losing money. Um, but again, that also taught me a lesson. Our experiences govern how we invest, right? So um, I would never buy a condo again under any circumstances. And then anyone who's heard me speak about them, I like I speak ill about every single condo. <laughs> if you're in a condo, I'm so sorry, get out. Um, you know, and for, for, for a number of reasons, um, things that I learned being a condo owner, one, some, some t like the board, they're usually a bunch of idiots mm. who are crazy and very opinionated, right? Like the, the folks who typically join the board are like the wackos who got nothing to do but make your life miserable. So you've got the board to think about, right? Number two, most condo um, uh, reserve accounts are, are way underfunded way underfunded because they want to keep the condo fees low, make right. it attractive, mm -hmm. want you to live there. So they keep these condo fees really low. If the condo fees are really low, that means if something major happens, roof, windows, if you're in a big building, the elevators go, something like that, they don't have enough money. So they have to um, do something called a special assessment uh, to every owner. And it's usually like a pro rata amount based on like your square footage. So not only was this the worst investment ever, just some some because of timing, but um, I got hit with a special assessment for roof damages or roof issues that I didn't even have a problem. Like, I, I'm like, my place ain't leaking. Like, why I got to pay $6,000? <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I think also, and this was a very um, unfortunate example. Y'all probably remember that instance um, recently in Miami, right? So, building that fell? Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if y'all heard. Each owner had just recently been assessed somewhere between, I think, like 80000 upwards of $300,000 for some of the structural engineering work that needed to get done. That was that was the responsibility of the owners, the owners. each of the individual owners um, of each of these condos to pay. You could That's crazy. you couldn't. OK, you could give me a condo. You could give <laughs> me one. I would never buy one. 
Yeah. That is ridiculous. Like I couldn't even imagine being in that position. Oh, I yeah. Either. So that's a, that's an L. Definitely. That's that's a, a, that's a, yeah. <laughs> so what's the like? What's the um? What's the strategy? You just gonna just hold it? So now that I have now that I don't have a mortgage on it anymore, um, it actually does cash flow. Um, but I, I I paid the mortgage off just because I I came into some like random capital and said let me just stop this bleeding. Um, so I, so now it's not an it's not an L because I have no I have no debt on it. But at this you know I, I need to now at this point try to try to recoup all of the all of the losses that that I've had to put into this thing. Jesus Christ. It takes some time. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to dive into like tenant matters for a second because I don't think a lot of people talk about this. And especially for new investors, it's a weird space, like owning a house and now having tenants and trying to figure out how to navigate with them. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us kind of go out of our way to be lenient with yep. our tenants to help them out. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, we are running a business yep. and the whole purpose of us investing in real estate is to cash flow. Yep. So in your opinion, long-term, do you think it's in your or landlord's best interest to be really lenient and like building relationships with their tenant to help them out? Or do you think you should be by the book and just focus on getting your cash flow? You know, that that's very case by case, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it depends on how you approach um, your business as a landlord, right? If you're, mm. if if I'm running a business, I, like I don't want to hear stories. I like I, I don't. <laughs> then, then then that's that's fine. For for me as a landlord, um, I invest in prime. Well, when I first bought them, they were like underserved pockets of Philadelphia. Like when I when I first started invest, a part of for for me, a part of investing is having. Um, social impact as well mm -hmm. right so i tend to keep my my rents slightly below in some cases quite a bit below fair market rents because i want to make sure that people who want to live in this community maybe grew up in this community aren't priced out of this community um so i keep my rents a little bit low and i also tend to work with my tenants mm -hmm. um, because i don't want them to have evictions filed on them because then they're never going to get a good landlord um, but I'm in a very different position than most. On most of my properties, I don't have mortgages. So things that I can do to keep rents low for tenants is mm -hmm. not, may not be the same as what someone else can do because they've got, in most cases, mortgages on every single property. Mm -hmm. So I think that you've got to approach being a landlord um, based on where the financials are and where the numbers make sense um, and, then, and then handle matters accordingly. Um, I mean, most of my tenants, um, you know, I think that's also why I'm almost never in eviction court. You know, I, 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 most of my tenants, I had one tenant during the pandemic that had lost her job and she could have just hunkered in my unit like, all right, sis, you know, we like, yep. I'll see you next year. Like <laughs> she could have done that. But because she and I had a great relationship, she was like, all right, Aisha, I'm just going to leave. Like she just left. And I was like, respect. And mm -hmm. because of the relationship that we have and that I have with all of my tenants, I wouldn't expect any different. I never, I never expected to run the risk of me having the relationships that I have with my tenants for one of them to say, I'm going to just burn you yeah. or just cut off communication. Um, so that has served me well. Um, but I'm also in a very different position in that one, I bought my properties super, super cheap, mm -hmm. um, have 
don't have mortgages on most of them, so I can keep rents low. That often fosters a long-term relationship with tenants. I mean, I almost never have turnover, especially in my, in my houses. My single-family houses, my tenants, I got tenants that have lived in houses so long, I think the neighbors probably think the tenants own the house. Um, <laughs> so be, because of that, you know, because I keep my rents low, I mean, I tend to only increase rents if the city increases the taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, my insurance doesn't typically go up. So if my taxes go up, I'll increase the rents. I'll let tenants know why I had to increase the rents. I'll show them the increased tax bill. Mm-hmm. Just so you, like, I ain't trying to knock you over the yeah. head. You know, you've been a great tenant. So because of that, my tenants tend to stay um, long-term. So a lot of the months without rent and turnover costs, I, I don't have those. That's mm. really good. Do you use property management? I do my own property management. Wow. Yeah, I do my own property management. What, What's that? Why, why, why not hire somebody? That's a lot of money. Ain't nobody got that kind of money. <laughs> listen. So it's not I, difficult? Listen, but it's it, right, no, it's no, no, no. It is. It's difficult. It's a pain, it's a pain in the butt. And so I, I remember saying, once I hit 10 units, I'm going to get a property manager. And then I remember sitting down with a property manager and understanding what the fee was. And <laughs> was sick. like, I can handle it. Um, <laughs> so, so, so now, you know, I, I just think about... I just think about my gross rents, and that's with partners included. I'd have to probably pay someone close to seventy thousand dollars a year to to manage my properties. Like, ain't nobody doing yeah, that. I can you know, handle it. I, I would, yeah, I can handle it. Um, I would. I would. Before I did that, and I've actually had conversations with um, with someone that that we may like start a property management company. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would handle all of my management. We would do management for other um, investors in, in Philly. Um, I would go that route at this point before. Um, and I, I'm at the point where I'm tired of doing it. I'm starting yeah. to like, you know, my tenants text me and, and you know, I got <laughs> like, to, yeah, I mean, all, all my tenants like, and, and they try to be, they try to be respectful, but also my relationship with my tenants, it helps because I like almost all of my tenants come from referrals from other tenants. So very rarely do I have to like list a property, then I gotta, you know, do showings. Now that I'm spending a lot more time in LA, I have finally turned over, um, if I can't get a tenant through referral, some of my higher end units, um, I now have listed with an agent. So Mm -hmm. that I've started to delegate a bit um, for some of my pricier units. but yeah, I've been I've been doing it all on my own. That's a money. That's good. Shout out to you. Is that's right? a lot. But you know what? I, I will say with that said, you also have to know y- you, right? Yeah. Right. You got to know you. Um, an investor I know, um, actually a partner of mine, um, she had a tenant that took her there. She ran up in this man's, in her house, while the man was in the shower with a gun. Like, you gonna give me my rent <laughs> or you gonna get out. Like, and, and she said she, she left the building, got in her car, shaking. Like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, like, I, I have to find a property manager because I can't believe yeah. I, almost, <laughs> I almost risked it all, right, for 1800 right? So. It's the principality. It's the, like, she, like, and, and, and I can understand go, going Go Going there, right, right. Mm-hmm. So if you're. If if that's who you are, if you know that that hot feeling in the in the pit of your stomach will take have you running up in somebody's house, or removing their door, or like I, I've heard all kinds of crazy yeah. things, it's it's not worth it. Hire a property manager um, because you got you got too much to lose, you know, to mm-hmm. to be doing anything crazy like that. That's crazy. 
So I'm gonna go into our um, next sponsors, then we are gonna go to the audience with they uh, with their questions. So our, this episode is also sponsored by Marcus Graham. Marcus is an entrepreneur and vending machine expert who's made over six figures in vending machine business. He's created a vending machine course called the Vending Starter Kit that literally lays out the blueprint for you to start your own vending machine business. In this course, he teaches you everything you need to know about the business of vending, how to form and scale your business, find a location, and how to earn up to $5,000 per month. Marcus has already helped over a thousand people get started, and he's ready to get help you guys get it started as well. Visit www.marcusgram.digital.com to get started. And this is also sponsored by a good friend, Cousin Nita, the great, the great Cousin Nita, she, who's a great killer in the home inspector industry. She just started a course to how to become a certified home inspector workshop just for you so that you can learn how to start your own home inspector business within six months in any state in America. You don't need any experience in the home inspector industry or real estate industry to get started in this great opportunity for you to, for you to be your own boss and earn an extra $5,000 a month. You can purchase this workshop by visiting www.cousinita.com. And once again, both of those links are in the description of this podcast episode. So if you're interested, go in the description, click those links. So I want to go to the, um, I want to get our audience virtual and the people here a chance to ask questions. So we can, we can start. It's a microphone. We're going to uh, pass on the mic. Hey, how you doing, Aisha? Thank okay. you so much for coming out. Um, so my question is, how have you leveraged the tax advantages of real estate to offset your uh, your other earned income and ordinary income, uh, depreciation, travel deductions, all that stuff? What's your favorite, what's your go-to strategy and how do you kind of use that systematically? Yep, so um, the, first, the first thing is hiring a good CPA. And I tell people all the, time, all the time, if you own real estate, like don't try to go it alone. But before you own property or other assets, you know, you like, sure, go ahead to TurboTax or um, Liberty Tax or wherever you, where wherever it is you're going. But once you have a um, once you have a, a portfolio of at least even just one or two properties, make sure that you're working with a good um, CPA. So she's been great with, I mean, essentially like zeroing me out. Um, you know, on on my rental income. Um, you know, we obviously, we take the depreciation, we take all the property taxes, insurance, you know, mileage, like, you know, all, all the stuff um, that is involved in not just um, owning the real estate, but also the fact that I do all of the management, um, all of that gets, um, gets deducted. Uh, real estate is one of the most tax efficient investments out there. Right. And I say that as um, both a real estate investor and a stock investor um, w within the within the um, within the stock world. Um, you know, you do have some similarities, but um, like you have a 1035 exchange with in the in the stock world, um, which is very similar to in real estate. We call it a 1031 exchange. Right. So I can essentially defer my gains. Um, buying a property and then I've got a period of time where I've got a selling a property I've got a period of time where I have to I can buy another property and defer those gains in the in the in the stock world you you can do something similar um, through utilizing an annuity um, and and there are pros and cons to to doing that but there are a lot of ways that you you you, you can't get rid of like you know if you got if you got a good stock portfolio that's in a non tax deferred account and it's kicking off uh, dividends um, then, you know, and, and oftentimes you're just a, you're, you're a sitting duck. Um, so that's one of the reasons I love real estate because, you know, it, I mean, you can legally, um, maneuver through the tax mm -hmm. code, 
um, to write off a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and then there are some creative ways. And again, this is why you want to work with a good financial professional. There are some good ways to, um, to like, for example, if you're flipping real estate and you don't want to do uh, a 1031 exchange, you can buy and sell real estate within retirement plans. Right. So you can do a self-directed um, Roth IRA mm -hmm. or a self-directed traditional IRA um, where, in essence, the IRA owns the property. Right. So if you're a if you're a flipper and you say, you know what, well, the 1031 is cool, but I'm going to end up still having to pay that tax. I mean, like literally a 1031 exchange, you're just kicking the tax liability up the road. Right. Um, if you're buying and selling property inside of a self-directed Roth IRA, for example, um, at 59 and a half, all of it's tax free. Right. So instead of like kicking that tax bill up the road, um, you're essentially creating an entirely tax free portfolio. Um, as long as you've had the Roth IRA for five years and you're at least 59 and a half when you start taking the distributions. Mm. So, great question. We won't go to the, once we go to the people that virtually get, get one of their questions in. We have a few questions virtually. Uh, I'm gonna summarize this one, it's a little lengthy, but a couple purchased two properties, one of them being a multifamily and it needs renovations. Do you have any recommendations on finding funding to rehab these properties? Um. There's a couple things that you can do. So I like cheap money, right? So I know hard money is, is popular today, um, but real estate and winning in real estate, either as a long-term landlord or as a flipper is a game of inches, right? So I like cheap money. Hard money would be probably one of my last options. So, you know, I don't know what kind of assets the person has already. If they own a primary residence, for example, if there's equity in there, I would consider tapping, the, tapping that equity to do some of the renovation work. It's one of the cheapest places that they can borrow. Um, if the person has a qualified plan through work, if they have a 401k or a 403b through work, if it's that person and a spouse and they both have um, qualified plans through work, you can borrow up to um, $50,000 with a lesser of 50,000 or 50% of their workplace retirement plan. And one of the neat things, because you hear people say all the time, oh, you should never take money out of your retirement plan at work. Like you absolutely should. You absolutely, like you, I wouldn't use it to pay down my, my, my shoe buying habit, but what I, what I, what I use it to, um, to buy another asset, absolutely. Because the, the, the neat thing about borrowing from a workplace retirement plan um, is, again, you can take the lesser of 50% or 50,000, whichever number is lower, you, in essence, become a lender. So the interest, for example, that you pay on that loan goes back into your 401k or 403b. So you basically become the bank. There's probably not a cheaper way of borrowing than utilizing a workplace retirement plan. The only risk of um, borrowing from a workplace retirement plan is you've now taken your money out of the market. So if the, if the investments that you had inside of your 401k were doing well, then you miss out on the upside of those investments. Um, if you do it like, you know, kind of right where the market's at its peak and you, you borrow from it to, I mean, and the market then takes a nose, nosedive, I mean, talk about great timing. Right. So I wouldn't do that maybe at the bottom of the market, but, you know, if we're at, you know, the levels that we're at today, you know, I, I certainly would, would consider it. Um, and then outside of that, um, you know, there are other creative ways. I've seen, I've seen folks do everything from 
um, you get you guys get those balance transfer offers from credit card companies, right? Those checks, right? So you write yourself a check and the fee is maybe like 3% or 5% one time and then it's 0% for a year or 18 months or something like that. That's a cheap way to borrow. I mean, you basically, if you got a, if you got one with a 4% fee and it's, you know, a 15 month term, I mean, you're essentially, your, your, your APR is like, 2.9% or something like that. That's a that's a cheap way of doing it. The only the only issue with doing that is um, your utilization, your credit util utilization is going to spike, so your credit score is probably going to plummet. Mm. Um, but that's a cheap way of borrowing. Right. You're like, you know what? I don't care. I'm not getting a new car or a new home within the next year. I, like, I'm I'm fine if my credit score tanks, and then when I'm done with this property, I can sell it and pay my credit cards off, uh, and then my credit cards my credit score will then increase. That's another way uh, that I would look to, to borrow. So these are all different ways that I would look to leverage. And if all else fails, then fine, go to go to hard money. Um, <laughs> with hard money, you're going to pay substantially more than you would with those other options. Um, but that would be that would be a, a last alternative. Okay. So we'll go back and forth so he can he can access. Uh... Auntie, how are you? <laughs> how you doing? So, Actually, hold, hold on. Before you ask that question, one other thing on that last question. Um, even before I went to hard money, um, I would possibly talk to friends and family mm. about borrowing kind of like private private lending. If you got like an auntie, right, who's like me. If you got an auntie and you're like, look, auntie, here's the numbers. I can give you 6%, 7%, 8%. That would still be cheaper than hard money. I would do that before I even went to hard money. Tell them to put 1-800-CALL-AISA. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're fine. So speaking to, in your story, you mentioned you took 50K out of the property. And for anyone just coming into like their first 50, 100, 100K and you're around that area, one, I want to know, what was it like, like your circle at the time? Did you tell anybody when you were doing everything you were in the process? And like, you know, or were you nervous that you had so much money at the time? And you were just like, you're going, you know you're good at something. But it's like, when did you feel you made it? And then how has your circle evolved over time? You know, you got money, money now. So like, how has it evolved as you have went through those steps and you've gotten to higher pinnacles along the way? Um, so was I scared? Yes. Right? Like... You know, and, and that's okay. That's okay to be scared. Um, mm -hmm. Just make sure that the that the numbers line up. You know, just look at it a million different ways. What's the worst thing that can happen? You know, how, how much would I be out if, you know, if, if things didn't go right? Um, it's okay to have those thoughts. Um, and you try to ensure and protect against the worst case scenarios as, as best possible. Um, what my circle looked like then, so so back in 2002, I was two years in as a stockbroker. Um, so I still had like, I had my, my 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 friends I grew up with, who at that point were like calling, they started calling me Lily, like you I'm started- I'm a stockbroker as well. Yeah, okay, cool. So I had my yeah. friends who were like, you starting to talk white. Like, why are you sound like that? You know, so I had my, my friends' friends that I grew up <laughs> with, and then I had my work associates um, who, a lot of them, I mean, you know our business, like, like financial services is very much a white male dominated industry, right? Um, so a lot of them had already had this kind of exposure, right? Like they had um, parents or friends or aunts or uncles who were doing this already. So it was kind of cool that I actually got to kind of like talk to them, pick their brains, or let me talk to your, you know, your friend who's doing this already. Um, I did a podcast recently with a guy, um, 
he was he was buying and selling properties like while in college, right? That never even dawned on me that I could do that, right? It never it never even. I mean, I, I think back to my mom's property that I got so mad at her that she sold. Sis, you could have bought it. Like I could have bought, I could have, right. I could have bought that property. Right. Right. You figure thirty-five, forty thousand dollars at the time I was, I was working as a bank teller. I mean, what's a thirty-five thousand dollar mortgage? Three hundred dollars a month. Right. Right. Like that's yeah. that's that's nothing. Right. So I, mm. I, I could have bought it. So that expanded. That opened up my network in the career that I was in to people who were already doing that kind of stuff, which was which was helpful and kind of gave me like, all right, you know, I've, I've talked to y'all, and then I just had to make the leap. Um, today I still, like, I still got old friends. I still have, I like, I still have my childhood friends. I still have, um, you know, I'm not like, I won't say I'm a team, no new friends kind of person. Um, but I, I value and honor the, the folks that have known me, like, you know, back when I had like a Chevy Beretta that we had to plan, like, all right, as we can get started at about 7.30, the car probably gonna cut off around 7.45. You <laughs> sit a little, you, you, so, you know, anybody had that car that you, it just got, you just gotta let it rest a little bit and it'll turn back on. <laughs> so, so those friends, I still, I still have too. Was there a financial number that you obtained where you felt like you made it? Um, so my goal was to hit a million, be, to be worth a net worth of a million bucks by the time I was 30. Um, I hit it, but then that was 2008. I, I hit it like right before my birthday. And then if y'all remember what started happening in 2008, the market crashed. I said, damn it, like, I just got here. You just got here. I just got here. Just like that. And then I had like, um, when I hit the goal, my, without sharing too much of my business, but my, um, my number was five million. I said, all right, once I get, once I hit a net worth of five million, we we in there like I didn't I didn't made it, and then when I hit that number, um, I started doing math in my head. So you know, as as as, as stockbrokers, we typically tell clients um, you can expect to pull four percent a year off of your portfolio, right? So when I hit when I hit that number, four percent of five million is two hundred grand. I remember thinking, I need that ain't that ain't enough, right? Like and you know, today, I was just saying this the other day. It costs me about eleven, twelve thousand a month just to wake up in LA. Yeah. Right? Just to just to like <laughs> just to get going. I mean, I'm talking like that's mortgage, car, I'm grocery shopping. I ain't balling out at, at eleven, twelve thousand a month, right? So, you know, so 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 then I had to like push that number further. But once I hit that number, um I I, I felt good. Like I was like, all right, we 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 moving in the right direction. And then I had um, Kanye's voice in my head, you ain't getting money unless you got eight figures, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, so then I, you know, so then that was a goal and that, you know, so, but once yeah. I hit 5 million, I felt like I was doing something. You don't go somebody in a, in a virtual. Okay, so this person wholesales, they make about 60 to 80K a month. They save 10% each deal to buy and hold a property. Is it too little? Also started investing in the stock market. What is a good amount, good amount to invest monthly? Um, you know, everything is, is, is relative in terms of investing, right? There's no, um, there's no magic number. It's just, you know, you're with, with stocks, for example, they've made it so easy now where you can buy fractional shares. Um, it's so much easier than it was when, I mean, you can buy through cash app, like, you know, you, you've got so many different ways to invest. What I would, what I would do, um, if I was this person that they're trying to figure out 
what are numbers um, that they should be hitting as monthly targets, um, I would do some future value calculations that estimate, you know, let's say you hit a 9% annual return over a 20 or 30 year period. Um, if I was investing a thousand bucks a month, what would that give me? Um, I would back into the numbers and see what excites them. If they're like, you know, well, I would only have a million dollars at 50 or 60 if I did this number. Um, I think that if they can play with those numbers, the future value numbers, that will kind of guide them on where they should be in terms of monthly savings mm -hmm. or investing today. Anybody else? Yep. There we go. Hi. Hello. Thanks for coming. I just had a quick question. I wanted to know what are your thoughts on, I hear a lot about FHA. Uh, what are your thoughts on VA loans? I'm currently at a point where, not to disclose too much, but we're building on a lot we own, clear and free, but we're also acquiring more land, but we also have a home that we bought purposely in the hood, in Houston actually. and there are now $280,000 homes where we bought for the $60,000 area. And people tell us to do FHA, but my husband's a veteran, so there's some veteran funds. Like in terms of, and now I'm hearing about the 401k, what's the best avenue as far as, and then the HELOC, taking the money out. Like what is the best avenue as far as money sources to be able to utilize all the sources? Yep, so um, I'm no lending expert. Um, but what I do know is if you are a veteran or were a veteran or married to a veteran and you have the opportunity to do a VA loan, do a VA loan. Yeah. Um, like, you know, and that, we veteran. yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you get to, you, you get to put down like very, very little, Nothing. like, no, yeah. We've Nothing. done it twice, but never for, a, a, like what we're doing, a subdivision and yep. additional, like, Texas Veterans Land, but we got a lot of opportunities and I just didn't want to because everybody's like, no, just go the FHA route. But I'm not comfortable with that. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I mean, I don't, I don't like. It, it, it may be people who are just unfamiliar with the benefits that you get um, as a as a veteran. Um, I have the only product that I've seen that's that's better than a VA loan. If you're married to a physician, these doctor loans um, is like borderline unfair. Like uh, <laughs> you get that just for medical school. Because huh? a dentist, she gets yeah. Unfair. No, they get they get they get crazy financing just for being physicians. Mm -hmm. So um, outside of that, you should be able. Thank you. Absolutely. Another virtual question. Uh, because of the high prices in Philadelphia, I probably have about 75 to 100K equity in my house. Would you suggest taking money out to buy an investment property? Yep. <laughs> so I listen, I love a good old HELOC. Like, I feel like if you if you got equity, just just have a HELOC. Just, I'ma just need a HELOC. You go into the bank, what you need? I just need a HELOC. I don't like, I don't know why. <laughs> um, I would, if you've got equity in a property, and again, this is for a disciplined person, right? Like. If you know good and well you got a shopping problem, don't get a HELOC. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 we, I always say everything depends and it's, it's always so hard to give um, gen, gen, general advice, right? Um, you know, I remember an instance where I was talking to someone um, and it made perfect sense for them to do a cash out refinance on their existing home because they had like $60,000 worth of credit card debt that was at like twenty. 4%, I mean, it was like ridiculously high rates. They could do a cash out refinance on their primary residence, take the cash from their residence, pay the debt off, and the debt would be at, you know, 
3.5% instead of 20-some percent. From a financial standpoint, makes a lot of sense, right? Dollars and cents, right? Yep. They did it, paid the debt off. A year later, the credit cards were right back up to where it was before. So actually ended up being a worse, put them in a worse financial, I mean, it was literally like, you know, going to a buffet, clearing your plate, and then like, I, you know, I can, I can load up all over again. Yeah. So, um, so what, what generally makes sense, you know, I'm, I'm using, you know what I'm saying, get a HELOC, um, assuming you don't have, you know, the person who's asking the question doesn't have a major spending problem and wouldn't go crazy with the equity in their house. Stop it now. We're going to Mo. before Mo, and then we'll yeah. go to Mo. Um. Hi, Isha. My name is Gabriella. Nice to meet you. Um, so I relate to you very much because my mother also was a teen mom and um, I currently make more than her. So I wanted to ask your advice. You know, I kind of have a little pressure. She doesn't give me pressure, but just like wanting to take care of my mother. Um, do you have or did you hit a certain number before you're like, OK, let me take care of my mom or, you know, the people that you love that, you know, weren't as I guess, financially secure as you were. Um, and then once you did, did you fully take care of them? Or was it like, okay, this is, you know, this is the game, this is how you do it. And then, you know, what was your path? You know, so it's, it's funny because so many of us have that, have that challenge. I think we call it the black tax. Right? Like, <laughs> no, like, you know, when you're the, you're the, the, the one in your family or one of your family. Yeah. And and now you feel this responsibility um, to, to take care of, because in, in our, in our families, historically, no one was wealthy. Right. Yep. And everyone's just kind of struggling. And yep. maybe your, your mom did what she needed to do just to, to make sure you were okay. And then you've got this kind of guilt of that. Right. Um, what I would say to you is secure your mask first, right? Um, I would make sure that you're financially comfortable, that you're in a position where you need to be. Have I helped family over the years? Absolutely. You know, somebody need a good lawyer. Here, oh, here we go again. You know, Johnny in trouble again. Um, so ha have I been um, that resource for family? Sure. But I've always, always um, made sure that I take care of securing my max first because it doesn't it like no one wins if, if this whole shit goes down right right so um when i started um when i started really giving to my family like i started paying my niece's student um her financial or student loan mm. uh, bills um i was paying the portion of student loan debt that my mom took out for my brother i i started doing that a couple of years ago i was already like yeah i'm gonna be all right you know I'm, i'll be fine um, so I had, I had long crossed that millionaire threshold when I started really making meaningful contributions to, to help my mm. family. I mean, I don't want my mom to struggle. Like, I, I, I would probably be like Griselda Blanca if, right. if I didn't have the mom I had. So I, I do feel, um, listen, because I go, I'm going, I'm, I'm like, I'm going hard up or not, like, or not. So if I had gotten into the weed game, I'd, I'd, I would have been <laughs> on full on crack three years later. Like, you know, I'd have been. <laughs> Out of it, Nino Brown. Like, yeah. So, so do I feel a responsibility to her? Absolutely, um, and not just because she had that one conversation with me. I mean, she's she's everything, right? So, um, but at the same time, I always knew that it was important. Like, if I'm going to help her later in life, and the good the good thing about us having young moms is that they're still young, right? They can still go out, they can still work. Um, so, 
it's important for you to make sure that you're financially situated first. And, and I can't tell you what that number looks like for you. Um, but again, I didn't start making those meaningful, consistent contributions to family until I was well in millionaire status. Thank you. And then outside of your mother, because I feel like once I hit a certain goal, then, you know, my mom's good. But like, how do you get other family members to like not take advantage of the situation that you're super financially successful, um, but they not might not be? I ain't got no like, they, you know, I, I don't that doesn't even come up. You know, I don't even um, I don't I don't think I. I'm pretty firm. And maybe that's why I don't even get the questions. Um, know. You know, I got one. I got one. One family member who's been in jail for a very long time. Um, you know, I'll like you know try to put money through PayPal or you know whatever that is. But I mean, we're talking, we're talking commissary. Like you know, here's forty bucks. You know, that's that's that's, that's good that's living over there. You know? right. So you know, so it, fa family. I've always drawn a very clear line it is not my responsibility right. um to take care of everybody like that's that's not fair for you um and if you're not in a position to do it you know it's it's it would be very hard to to stop doing that um i've never felt financially responsible for my entire family because once you once you put put it out there that you know i got it like that um, yeah and if you if you feel because sometimes we're sometimes you know folks can be too nice right like if you listen lie to these people like i ain't got it like I'm, i was just about to ask you for twenty dollars like you know, i'm short i'm short like whatever you gotta do like it, you know i ain't gonna hold you i'm not gonna judge you either you know whatever you got to do so that like that makes you sleep at night like i just i don't have it like Boundaries. you know i was coming to your house for dinner please <laughs> thank you yeah so um i'm a young burr investor and i heard that's how you started out yep. uh, my question really to you is and now you own your properties free and clear my question to you is when did you feel like it was the best time to start paying those properties off and what advice do you have to to be able to do that strategically in a good way to still be cash flow so if you um one of the things i think that people do far too fast is like leave their bread and butter job leave that like Lee, like you know, people and, and entrepreneurs. So many times they like knock, right? Like they they knock um, having a nine to five, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can um, invest in real estate and still have a steady paycheck, um, that gives you a very unique opportunity to never even really need your rents to live off of. Um, I was in that position, so I was still working while I had rental properties. So the cash flow. I've always used to just roll to paying down debt. And I used um, what is traditionally called the snowball method. So I would just focus on the smallest mortgage first. So if I had six cash flowing properties, I would take the excess mortgages, I'll pay the, pay the basic mortgage um, on all six of them. And then I would take the excess cash flow and throw that all on the smallest mortgage. And then I'd, if I'd get like a, a commission check or a bonus check or something, I would take that and throw that on that smallest mortgage. And then when that smallest mortgage was paid off, I would use all of that money to roll to the next smallest mortgage. So I've always just kind of had like that, I want free and clear houses. And and, Pete, and and that's my preferred strategy. I don't like a lot of debt, you know, if, if I never imagined when I started investing in real estate, a pandemic like this happening. Mm. Um, but it felt really, really good because people would argue, no leverage, leverage, every, like just leverage, you know. That's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Um, I would, 
when we hit this pandemic, it felt really good knowing I didn't have a lot of debt, right? And if this is going to be a new normal for us, I don't know. I hope not. Um, you want to make sure that you're in a position to be okay if your tenants don't pay rent or, you know, if, if the whole world shuts down. I mean, no one quite saw that coming, but it was good for me to know, like, everybody could not pay their rent. They didn't, but everybody could not pay their rent and I'll still be okay. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we got to hurry up and go through them so and we don't then, go uh, too far over time. All right. As a stockbroker, what are your thoughts on crypto? <laughs> I don't think about crypto. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's. Um, I see the need for it. Like I, I see um, I see the value in like a global digital currency. Um, but early, early on in my investing career, I developed very specific and clear disciplines. Um, that kind of made me a little bit old school, and and these are just disciplines that govern how I invest in, in anything. So for, for those disciplines that I developed, I don't I don't I don't venture into NFTs or crypto. It's just outside of, you know, and I could be just way too like old school Warren Buffett, like, you know, I mean Buffett was admittedly wrong on a lot of tech companies like Apple, right? Um, and I, I may be I may be calling it wrong there, but it's just you know I love the fact that I've got especially a lot of my socialist friends who don't you know <laughs> who don't who won't you know I like I ain't doing no capitalism, but I'll buy cryptocurrency. I'm like all right, good you know. So to see them like making money in, um, in 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 digital currency, I, I I love it. It's just not my like. I don't understand. Like, I don't invest in things I don't un quite understand. Like, I'm like, well, who started this? <laughs> Santorini, Nakamoto, oh, where's he at? I don't know. I'm like, so I, so I'm, I could just got too many questions. And I, w one thing about me with my investments, um, I try to keep it very, very, very simple. And if I can't understand, if you can't teach it to me like I'm a five-year-old, if I can't understand every single thing about it, I don't do it. And that was that was a discipline I developed 21 years ago. Mm. Um, so I, I will never deviate from that. I just want to start off by saying it's a pleasure, um, you know, to be in your presence. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I have uh, I learned about wholesaling a year ago, so um, I haven't been fortunate enough to land my first deal. But uh, like you said, cold calling and, you know, just picking up the phone. I'm from um, South Florida, so Palm Beach, which is uh, maybe like 30 minutes north of Fort Lauderdale. Yep. Uh, picked up the phone, got on the phone, called. I used the app Landglot to uh, just see, like, vacant lots and houses, yep. owners around me. Um, and I got on the phone with um, this 70-year-old. He has three acres for sale, um, and he told me to come out literally the day after I talked to him, uh, got it under contract. He wanted a million dollars at first, but then after going to his attorney, he uh, raised it to like 1.5. So my question to you is, how would you go about uh, maybe finding those high-end buyers? Because like right now, I don't really know anybody with that capital to even, you know, to purchase the land. So how would you go about marketing um, to high-end buyers? Um, you know, I would probably either talk to some high-end agents that are in your market, and I know in your market there's a lot of them. <laughs> um, that's a pretty pricey area. And don't underestimate the power of social media. 
Yep. Um, I would throw that thing out on, like, you'd be surprised how many high-end buyers are on Facebook Marketplace um, or on Instagram or on Twitter. Um, I mean, it's, it's big money on Twitter, right? Like in, in real estate Twitter. Um, so I would be using all the appropriate, well, actually that's LLC Twitter. I'm talking oh, about so. Um, so there's a, they have to have this clip everywhere. I'm telling you right now, it's all good though. Um, so I would, I would, I would be out there marketing the property um, through socials, and don't be afraid to reach out to um, some higher end realtors who have access to buyers. No, no, no. I'm, I'm told. I'm, I'm sure you want to keep it off market. You just want to find the right realtor who can, like, you know, they'll get something out of it but will still let the deal go through off market. I mean, they're, they, I, I hear you, you don't want it listed on the MLS. Um, so you're not talking to a realtor about listing it for you. You're talking to a realtor about how can we work together to find a buyer for this. We got a few more virtual questions. Yeah, let's hurry up and get the virtual ones out the way. Okay, so, for Aisha, yeah. at what time did you consider yourself successful? <laughs> she already answered that one. Um, when did I consider myself successful? Um, I think, I think probably before, even before I was a, a millionaire, when I realized the power of investing um, and started like systematically investing. Um, I think then I considered myself successful because I was doing at that point I was doing something that no one I knew had ever done. Like I mean, no one I like I grew up with. No one I um, no, like no one in my family they weren't talking about like stocks and mutual funds and investing. So when I grasped that concept um, and started putting putting things in motion, um, you know, even as simple as like contributing to my 401k and seeing like, you know, I remember seeing $900 balances in my 401k and I'm like, I'm on my way. Right? <laughs> like, so, so that, that gave me a huge, um, drive, a huge, a huge rush. Mm. Tay had a question here. Oh, here you go. Yes, sir. No problem. I just have a simple question. <laughs> um, so which do you prefer a HELOC or a cash out refinance and why? So it depends on, um, so I like a good he a HELOC because you can just, you can wash, rinse and repeat. I can keep using this thing over and over again. Usually they have um, like a 10 year period, for example, where you can just, you can use it on an as needed basis. Um, if you have, um, if you have something you know you need immediate capital for, then a cash out refinance can be beneficial, especially if you have to refi anyway because your rate's already high on your existing um, loan. So for example, if you've got a refinance, like if you've got a, a property that has, if you had a property that had a four and a half percent interest rate and you know you could refinance it down to 2.75 or three, I gotta refi the thing anyway. So since I gotta pay the closing costs on a refi, I might as well do the cash out because I already know I've got a particular project that I need capital for anyway. So if I'm doing it already um, to refi my rate down lower, then sure. But that also means on the flip side, if you've got a very low rate and doing a cash out refinance means you're going to possibly 
raise the rate on your current loan, you wouldn't do that. You would do a HELOC. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit um, situational, you know, but, but I love a HELOC. Oh, those are less virtual. And this uh, question is about networking. I know a lot of people say spend time with the people who are like how you want to be, but how do you get in those spaces and what has your community look like in terms of goal setting and reaching? I'm not a networker. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I, like, I'm an introvert. I, like, I don't, I, you know, people go to these meetups and- <laughs> that's, that's not true. No, I would have to be, there's a baby in here. I, so, I, you know, I, I don't, I like, I'm not, I can't, that's not my, um, that's not my space. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of, um, how I do my networking, um, because I am an introvert, is through social media. Social media has been like, this is great. I can just, you know, I can right. be home Virtually. tweeting. Like, right. You know, I ain't got to really talk to you. Talk. So, um, <laughs> so I, I can't help with that. But what I can speak to is just the power of um, social media. I've met so many people over the years through social media, people that I would consider like real friends um, through, through social media. So, you know, if the, if the person's a go-getter and out, outside person um, and, and they like having face-to-face -face conversations with people, which I think that's kind of weird, <laughs> um, you know, go, go for that. But that's, you know, I can't, I can't really speak to how to, but social media is great. Plug social into, media. yeah, plug into, you know, who's who in the, in the space you want to be in. If you want to be in real estate, mm -hmm. figure out who's who it like, fine. Like if you're in Baltimore, look at the Baltimore real estate hashtags, um, and, and follow the, follow the people who you, who you vibe with and who seem to, um, be doing well in the space and 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 i can't even say post receipts because if re receipts be fake you know so oh, man just don't you get got, me started yeah with that you one. got a good feeling um and you know and I, i'd also say and this is just something that i've been i've been talking about over the years just you know just just be careful of who you bring into your circle right just you know especially if you're if you're investing with other people um you know i'm i'm an advocate of being um having somewhat control issues over your over your capital um you know vet people you know i was i was saying that back when the tulsa real estate fund came out um and I, and, and we don't know the you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we don't we don't know the final outcome of that um but but what i did think was very interesting is folks who were asking me if i was investing in it i would ask them very specific questions about um you know tell me what's in the in the SEC filings, what's in, you know, what are in these reports? And they couldn't answer them. So, you know, I would just say that whoever you're going to invest in, and again, we don't know the final outcome of, of, of that specific investment. Um, I would just say, make sure you're vetting properly. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to make sure that you've, you've, you've read the documents, you've done the due diligence, you know who these people are. I mean, if you're going to invest in, invest with a person, I, I'm, I'm going to need to see your driver's license, buddy. I'm going to need to see some <laughs> bank statements. I'm going to need to see, you know, I'm going to at least need to know who you are. Mm -hmm. mm. Go ahead, P. Uh, this is about the HELOC. Um, have you ever had an issue when, when they come out and do the appraisal? To where you know how sometimes in the appraisal world, a lot of black people and in different areas, they get appraised lower sure. than what it normally supposed to be with the value. Have their white friends stand in. I'm asking because I'm about to get ready and do do a HELOC yep. um, to pull out some equity in um, one of my grandfather's properties. Okay. And so it's in an area that they are developing, but it's still in the hood of Dallas. So I, I'm like, do I... 
you know, should I have one of my white associates stand in or will they? Yeah. Then heck yeah. yeah okay. Why not? Can't hurt. Listen, I'm not um it, and it's so yeah. obviously we should not have to do that, right? Yeah. In the year of our Lord 2021, that's not where we should be, right? Um yeah. but it is what it is. Yeah, um if you've got if you've got a a, a, a white ally who will stand in um for the unfairness um, do what you got to do. I mean, it's 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 widely reported that that has helped with appraisal values, um, which is unfair and unfortunate. But here we are. So last quick question. I know you are a broker and you have your own firm for for I work at Fidelity right now mm -hmm. and I like it. It's just I hate being on the phones. I hate being on the phones, you know, talk like yep. is what would you is there any pathway that you would recommend to getting to where you are, where you're more in a, a, a powerful position in that in that um So way? when I when I started twenty one years ago, um, we could still cold call people. So I built I built my practice pounding the phones, like dialing over and over and over again. Like today, um, with the do not call oh, list, oh. um that car warranty people don't care about, but you know, most industries do. Um, and with caller ID, it, it's, it's much harder to build a book of business that way. Mm -hmm. If I were starting today, I would probably network with um, senior private wealth advisors in my, in my area, let them know that you've got experience and you'd like to join their team as an associate. Um, what that often leads to, and you want to be very clear about the direction that you want your career your career to go into, um, you essentially want someone who's looking to divest some of their client base, possibly sunset out, retire, and over time they start transitioning clients to you, and y'all can work on a compensation arrangement to do that. Um, that's essentially what I did with my practice. I had someone who I trained many, many moons ago. He came in, he joined my team. Um, today, when people request to meet with me through like website, the, our website and all that stuff, I, I just send them directly to Bernard, which is typically not what they're expecting, but I, I just don't have the capacity. Um, so I send him like quite a bit of new clients. I gave him a big chunk of my existing client base because I, I just, I can't service a thousand clients and still, you know, handle tenant issues. Um, <laughs> So because I, did, I just didn't have the capacity, he was essentially what you're looking for. Um, and he started out basically from zero and, you know, has, has quickly, I mean, I think he'll probably, I mean, he's, he's, he's at least a quarter of a million today um, and, and growing. Um, and then, you know, his, his thought process, and we've got to, we're working out details now, eventually I'll transition more of my practice to him over time. Um, and those are just some tr some things I'm trying to figure out. But that's what you that's what I would be doing. I would be trying to partner with um, somebody who's getting tired and looking to possibly sunset out. Thank you. Appreciate appreciate everybody for the questions. And before we wrap up, I just want to one 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 last question. <laughs> I think I feel like this is a very 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 important topic just because everybody in here probably is on social media. They brand building and all that stuff, and this is the subject of intellectual property because I've seen your seven step. Uh, wealth guy, I seen somebody take your exact thread from Twitter, post it on their big platform, yeah. and actually monetize it or attempt to monetize it. But you got it, you got their whole thing shut down. Yeah. So for the people that's here that may be going through stuff similar, like how can, first of all, how important is it? But how can they protect their IP and the things they're putting their brand and all that stuff? Yep. I mean, so, so I had a tweet that 
went kind of viral. Yeah. It was a seven-step process. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and a very good friend of mine said, look, this tweet was, this tweet was lit. You should flush it out um, and copyright it yep. and, and, and turn it into a book format. And that's exactly what I did. Um, and because I took the steps to go about getting it, you know, getting a legal copyright, um, when I saw sites, and, I, and the crazy thing is, um, I was okay with sites putting it up, just at me or right. tag me, giving you credit. Yeah, just get, just give me like give me credit. We work we work hard to like come up with the content. Yep. I mean, they literally took my seven steps verbatim, which had a U.S. copyright on, and and I, I DM them first, nothing. I commented on the post, nothing. Um, myself and my team, my publisher, we we emailed them like you know, hey, just. You know, and 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 nothing. So, um, make sure. I mean, your your intellectual property um, is is valuable. Just make sure that you take the steps to okay. to protect it. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's very it's very important. Mm. Oh, yeah, I just want to touch on that. But finally, that's that's uh, that's all the questions I have. First, I want to say I really, we both really appreciate you taking the time to come out your busy schedule. Thank you. Thank you. Fly here, yes. you you leaving later on the day. So we really really appreciate that. We don't take that for granted. And secondly, we appreciate everybody coming in everybody that's tapped in virtual like we really really appreciate that we're gonna do these things more often and then wrapping up for those who may want to find you on social media buy a book do anything where can they find you yep. follow you buy purchase products everything yep so i'm on uh, twitter and instagram at aisha selden altogether um it's a verified account so don't follow the unverified version because uh -oh. they probably hit you know. up for money um, <laughs> and you can buy my book on amazon uh it's mud the number two millions and you can also go to uh the my website if you want to read the digital version mud to millions.com sorry to interrupt you but everybody want to know this how you get the blue check everybody want to know how to get, get listen, a blue check. listen so um if you get a stretch. I like. I had a. I had like a, a period of time where everybody was doing articles on me, and right. it's crazy because I, I like they. The first person who did the article through Black, Black Enterprise, she never even reached out to me. She didn't DM me. Like she, she didn't ask me no questions. I think she just looked at a couple podcasts, read my post, and like did an article, and then that went like you know they like everybody started pulling off of that. Entrepreneur Magazine, um, like it was like, Forbes, right? It was uh, maybe, yeah. um, and then CBS did. Yeah. CBS Philly did a piece <laughs> on me. Um, and I was sitting in the car. I was actually doing some shopping for the house in LA. And I was sitting in the car, and I'm like, I'm lit right now. Like, let me let me apply. Like, <laughs> I am, like I'm popping right now. So if if I can't get get approved now, it's it's a wrap. Like, they, they just have. don't like me. So I, I popped the trunk. I got my ID, snapped the picture, like applied through just through the traditional like traditional yeah settings. Okay. And 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 Instagram and I forgot I forgot about it. I went about like I went in rejuvenation the store and just went about my shopping. They approved me. And then Twitter opened their um their, yeah, their application after years, yeah. right? They had it been it had been closed. Um I literally used the exact same um info on Twitter the first time. As soon as they reopened it, I did it. They denied me. And I was like, these sons of... And so, and, and I'm like, if I can't, like, I mean, I had, like, all the good publications. Um, and you had to wait 30 days. So I waited, I forgot about it, and then reapplied, like, 40 days later, and, and okay. saw it was approved. Okay. So, so I mean, and, and I literally use the same data, the, sa the exact same information the second time Twitter approved me that they denied me the first time. So I think some of it's... Who saw your application? Right. How, what yeah. mood they were in? I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, I just applied the traditional way. So the uh, the rest of your info as well? Oh, the the, the book mudtomillions.com, dot com, and you can get it on Amazon. Uh, Mud the number two millions. And the link for that will also be in the description as well. And mm -hmm. D, wrapping up with your info. And you can find me on Instagram at Deanna Kent and Twitter Deanna S Kent. And you can find me on YouTube at Lessons in Life and Luxury.
And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I'm popping on TikTok right now. Okay. <laughs> Xavier C. Miller. And, uh, that's all we have for y'all. Appreciate y'all tuning in for another episode of the Millionaire Mindsets Podcast. See you guys next episode. Peace. Peace. That's a wrap. You gotta get your brain right if you're trying to make a million dollars If you ain't gonna do it for yourself, then do it for your mama Only stay surrounded by them people if you know they solid Elevate your hustle up today to double up your profit Trying to learn some game, Xavier gonna talk about it No Deanna, speak that shit that everybody vouching Ain't no more excuses valid, get up off the couch and get up in your bag To your bank account, need an accountant